A couple of weeks ago, we celebrated our 50th anniversary of our church. And as much as we give thanksgiving for God's faithfulness through the years, we also recognize that there's still much for the Lord to do in us and through us as a church. We have not arrived by any stretch. Just as the advanced age of a person is no guarantee of personal maturity, so it is for the church. It's very possible to be a church that's been around for a hundred years or more and yet be a church that is spiritually immature and unhealthy. So what is it that helps a church grow into maturity and spiritual health? What is it that helps to ensure that as the years go by, it's not simply a celebration of years and an accumulation of years, but a growth in real maturity and health? Well, of course, we know that it starts with each one of us. Healthy Christians make healthy churches. You can't have a church made up of unhealthy, immature Christians and expect it to be a healthy church. Healthy Christians make healthy churches. Healthy pastors make healthy churches. Healthy elders and deacons make healthy churches. Healthy congregants make healthy churches. But what are the attitudes and actions that characterize healthy Christians and thus healthy churches? Well, Paul shares these attitudes and actions of a healthy church in Colossians chapter 3. And that's what we've been looking at. Colossians chapter 3, this morning, I'm going to read for us beginning in verse 12 of Colossians 3. And I'll go through verse 17, though our text this morning that we're going to focus on is verses 15 through 17. So you can follow along there quietly as I read Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. The Apostle Paul continues as he writes, and he says, So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks through him to God the Father. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that your word instructs us, teaches us 
who we ought to be, how we ought to live, what a healthy church looks like. And our prayer this morning is that you would continue to grow us into maturity as a body. Grow us into greater and greater health as a church. Lord, we want to be the kind of people who possess these virtues, these attitudes, and whose lives and gatherings are characterized by these activities. So teach us this morning, Lord, and may we take it to heart. May it produce in us real change where it's needed, real growth where it's needed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week we looked together, of course, at verses 12 through 14, and we saw the attitudes of a healthy church, the virtues of a healthy church. And we saw there seven heart attitudes to cultivate so that we can grow in maturity and spiritual health as individuals and as a church family. And I'll just review for you. We were to cultivate a heart of compassion for one another, a heart of kindness, a heart of humility, a heart of gentleness, a heart of patience with one another, a heart of tolerance and forgiveness. And then we saw that overarching virtue that really is the engine that drives all the others and that is cultivating a heart of love, which Paul says is the perfect bond of unity. So those were the attitudes of a healthy church. This morning we're going to see the actions of a healthy church in verses 15 through 17. What are the actions? What are the things we ought to be doing? We've seen what we ought to be cultivating in our hearts, those virtues and attitudes that have to be working in us in order for us to be a healthy church. But what are the things we ought to be doing together? Well, we're going to see that this morning. Four actions for us to practice so that we can grow in maturity and spiritual health as individuals and as a church family. So attitudes and now actions. Four actions for us to practice towards spiritual health and unity. All right, first of all, we see we are to let Christ's peace rule in our hearts. That's the first action. Let Christ's peace rule in our hearts. Verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. A healthy church will be made up of healthy Christians who let the peace of Christ rule in their hearts. Now, what does that mean? Well, we know that Jesus promised to give us his peace. John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. This peace of Christ is first and foremost the peace with God that Jesus has secured on our behalf through his cross work. We've already seen Paul lay out the details of Christ's 
securing our peace with God in this letter. Look back with me at Colossians chapter 1. Look at the peace that Christ has secured for us. Colossians 1.19. Colossians 1.19 says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, that is Jesus, and through Jesus to reconcile, reconcile, right, all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him i say whether things on earth or things in heaven and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind engaged in evil deeds yet he has now reconciled you he has established peace between you and god through his body through death in order to present you before him holy blameless and beyond reproach So we have a positional peace with God now that is our present possession which Christ has secured and no man can take away from us. But this peace that Christ has left to us is clearly intended to also produce in us an inner calm. A sense of well-being. That inner sense of shalom. The Hebrew word for peace. That all is well. That it is well with my soul. Even in the face of threats and great difficulties and trials, we can say it is well with my soul because Jesus Christ has left us his peace and has forever secured our peace with God. We can experience this personally. Emotionally, spiritually. That's why Jesus said what he did in John 14, 27. My peace I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled or let it be fearful. You have no reason for fear or having a troubled and vexed spirit. I've given you my peace. So we not only have a positional peace with God, but we can also have an emotional experience of internal peace in the face of Opposition and turmoil and difficulty. Philippians 4, 6 and 7 teaches us that this peace comes to us as a result of taking our cares and concerns to God in prayer. Philippians 4, 6 says, Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, Verse 7, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, when Paul says here in Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, all of that serves as a backdrop, right? The, The peace that Christ has secured, our positional peace, our experiential peace, the, the means of of attaining that experiential peace by not being anxious over anything, but submitting our requests to God and letting the peace of God rule and, and surpass all comprehension and guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. All of that's the backdrop. But Paul says here, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now what does it mean for the peace of Christ to rule in our hearts? The word rule means to umpire or to act as an arbiter. 
Now, what do umpires do? Class. What do umpires do? They make the call, right? They call the balls and the strikes. Don't tell Pastor Rob, he's not here this morning, that I, two weeks in a row I've used baseball illustrations. They call balls and strikes. Umpires call you either safe or out at the plate. So we're let to let the peace of Christ rule or umpire or make the call or have the authority in our hearts. So one could say that we're not to be ruled by fear and anxiety. We're not to let fear and Anxiety make the call and be the authority in our lives and be led around by them, but instead we're to let the peace of Christ rule. We're to let the peace of Christ be the arbiter. And the net effect of Christ's rule of peace in our hearts will be an increase of peace within the church body. I believe there's a very strong corporate dimension going on here. We tend to think of this as, well, as Americans especially, we, we always tend to think individually. But that's not the focus here. That's not the context here. There's a strong corporate dimension here. Look at verse 14. Remember where we were? Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Unity among believers. In order to have unity, we've got to have love. We've got to be cultivating love for one another. And that is the perfect bond of unity. Verse 15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. We might say it this way, let the peace of Christ overrule all your differences. All your disagreements. All your prejudices. Let the peace of Christ be the arbiter in your disagreements. Let the peace of Christ be the umpire calling balls and strikes safe and out. Let the peace of Christ rule among you. He says here in verse 15 that we're to let the peace of Christ rule among us, be the umpire, the arbiter. When are umpires and arbiters needed? When there are at least two parties in conflict, in opposition. Two teams in competition or two individuals with a disagreement, disagreement. you need an arbiter, you need an umpire. You need an outside authority. So I think Paul has this corporate dimension primarily in mind here. We as individuals are to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, which will have the effect of promoting peace within the church community. And then Paul adds that it is to this peace that we have been called in one body. Again, notice the the corporate dimension, the body element. As Christians, Christ has reconciled us to God and to one another. 
and united us together in Him so that we are all one, one body with Christ as the head. He's the umpire. He's the authority. And we let His peace rule in our hearts and in our fellowship. Can Christ be divided against Himself? No. Should Christ's body be divided against itself? No. Let the peace of Christ rule. Where there is fighting and jealousy and anger and slander, we can be sure that the peace of Christ is not being allowed to rule in our hearts or in our midst. And if Christ's peace isn't ruling in our hearts, it won't be ruling in our church. Beloved, we've got to let the peace of Christ rule. Rule over us. We are not in charge. None of us. We are not so important that it makes everyone else's issues lesser important. Not at all. When we are exercising love, that is the bond of unity. And when the bond of unity is strong, the peace of Christ is ruling and reigning. Let the peace of Christ rule. That's the first activity of a healthy church. Second activity of a healthy church. Let Christ's word dwell richly within us through song. Singing. Verse 16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Not only are we to let Christ's peace rule in our hearts and in our fellowship, but we're also to let Christ's word dwell within us and among us. Christ's word is the word about Christ. That is, it's the gospel. It's the testimony of Jesus Christ, which of course includes the entire Bible. It's the scriptures that testify of Christ. In John 5.39, Jesus said, the whole Old Testament testifies of him. And then on the Emmaus Road, the resurrected Christ explained to the two travelers that the Old Testament had at its, as its focus the coming of Jesus and the work of Jesus. Luke 24, 27, Jesus, it says there that then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, Jesus explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. So the word of Christ is the word about Christ, which is the Bible, and in particular, the truth of the gospel, the good news that God has sent his son, Jesus, into the world to be the savior of the world. It's the good news. It is this word, the word of Christ, that we're to let dwell richly within us. The word of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To let the word dwell in us is to let it be at home. To make it comfortable. To spoil it in our lives. To make accommodation for it. The word of Christ is to be welcomed into our lives, into our hearts, into our minds. It's to be welcomed and given freedom 
free reign over us. When Leanne and I have a guest, we often say, now make yourself at home, which I guess, you know, is something you're supposed to say. But we really mean it. You can put your feet on the coffee table. You don't have to take your shoes off at the door. Whatever you're comfortable with, we want you to be comfortable. We want our guests to feel welcomed, free to do as they like, and feel at home. And that's the idea here. We open the door of our hearts to the word of Christ, and we let it dwell within us richly. Richly adds the idea of abundance. We are to let the word of Christ run fully and freely in us and through us and make every accommodation for it. Pull out all the stops for the word of God in your life. The word of Christ should be made to feel right at home in our hearts and in our church. Our second core commitment as a church is the centrality of the scriptures, keeping the scriptures central to who we are and what we do. That's letting the word of Christ richly dwell within us. The church is to be a place where the word of God is welcomed and runs freely and openly and is made to feel right at home. As the word of God is allowed to dwell richly within us, it inevitably will spill out of us into singing. Congregational songs. Paul says that with all wisdom, we are to be teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Thank you for teaching me this morning. Thank you for admonishing me through song this morning. You folks over here, I watch you every week, just so you know. Some of you, I I have to turn too much to see this side, so that would be a little awkward. So, but all of you, I watch every Sunday. And I'm encouraged by your singing. You're teaching me. You're admonishing me with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Paul wrote something very similar to this in Ephesians 5. We've seen several times that the books of the letters to the Colossians and the letters to the Ephesians are very, very similar. Ephesians 5.18, he says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, be controlled by the Spirit, speaking to one another, In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. So one of the results of being filled with the Spirit is that we speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And we sing with our hearts and our voices to the Lord. So there's a close connection here between the word of Christ being allowed to dwell richly within us and being filled or controlled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit and the word of Christ are the perfect housemates. Perfectly suited for one another. The word of God and the spirit of God. The word of Christ and the spirit of Christ. 
Where one is welcomed, the other is sure to be present and feel right at home. But where one is unwelcomed, the other is sure to feel like he doesn't belong. When the word of Christ is allowed to dwell richly within us, it inevitably makes its way out of us through teaching and admonishment in song. Teaching is positive instruction, positive impartation of the truth. Whereas admonishing is warning or correcting. You're thinking some wrong thoughts and admonishing corrects our wrong thoughts. Or you're walking in a wrong direction and admonishing corrects us and sets us on the right path. Teaching and admonishing. So these songs are clearly instructing us and they're correcting us with all wisdom. They're accompanied with wisdom since they are songs based on the word of Christ, which is dwelling in us and among us richly. Christ, who is the source of all wisdom. Notice the songs sung here are psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Psalms are pretty much just what you think they might be. The Psalms of the Psalter, the 150 songs of Israel's hymn book. Psalms and hymns. Hymns were well-known summaries of Christian doctrine. We have some of those, we think, recorded for us in the New Testament. These early New Testament church songs that were composed and summarized great truths of the gospel. 1 Timothy 3.16 contains just such a hymn. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He, Jesus, was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. That's probably a song that early Christians sang. And of course, we know that Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 was very likely Paul's adaptation of a very well-known Christian hymn extolling the greatness of Christ and his identity. Paul is quoted from a Christian hymn in this very letter. Spiritual songs could have been more localized and perhaps less well-known songs of praise, but I would warn us to not get too technical about these definitions. Paul's point here is that our songs should reflect a variety of style and genre to reflect the richness and beauty of the gospel itself. To artistically express the realities of the gospel in song in a variety of ways. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It's been said that all theology should lead to doxology. And that's exactly right. As we allow the word of Christ to dwell richly in us, there should well up within us a geyser of praise that must be let out. That can't be corked. Let me say it this way. And be blunt. If you're not singing, you're sinning. If you're not singing, 
your sinning. What Paul says here has the force of a command. You say, well, I'm not a good singer. I don't care. And people around you don't care. The command remains, regardless of your ability, musically. I'm not a great singer. But the command applies nonetheless. This is for your good. This is for our good. When you don't sing... You are robbing me of the benefit I would otherwise receive. We are to be teaching and admonishing one another in song. I need you to teach me. I need you to admonish me with your singing. Now, not everyone has a gift of teaching. Not everyone's going to teach a Sunday school class. Not everyone's going to preach behind a pulpit, but make no mistake about it, we are all teachers when we sing together. Notice that this singing is to one another. Our singing is to be a corporate event in which we sing to one another. This isn't just you and Jesus with your eyes closed To block out all those distracting people around you. No. Save that kind of thing for the shower. Or for the car. But keep your eyes open. Our corporate singing is directed toward God. And for one another. That's why I look around. That's why I look over here. I don't want to just hear your voices. I want to see your faces, to see your lips moving and your faces smiling, your countenance reflecting the truth of what your mouth is vocalizing. That's why we don't dim the lights in here and make it as dark as we possibly can. We want to see each other. It is a communal experience. also why we're careful not to drown out the sound of our singing by the volume of our instruments. We need to hear each other affirming these truths about Jesus in song. It's an encouragement to all of us. When we come to church, we're not to be passive consumers, sitting back and being entertained by the folks on the stage. No, we're to be active participants Participants actively teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And I believe that the more we let the word dwell richly within us, the more our songs of praise will have to enthusiastically erupt when we gather together on Sundays. If you regularly struggle to sing or to sing from the heart, Ask yourself this. Am I letting the word of Christ richly dwell within me so that it has to bubble up and bubble over? Have I really thought about where I would be without Jesus? 
Have I really taken stock of how blessed I am because of Christ? Am I taking the gospel for granted? Am I just going through the motions and checking off the boxes and showing up? As though showing up would do all the work? Do I have reason to be thankful and joyous today? Do I have reason to give joyful expression in song? Healthy churches are saturated with Scripture and teaching and singing. Thirdly, a third activity of healthy churches. Let us do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. First part of verse 17. When you, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. To do something in the name of the Lord Jesus is to do that which would meet with his approval and that which would represent him well to others. Calvin says this about this verse. Our life must be regulated in such a manner that whatever we say or do may be wholly governed by the authority of Christ and may have an eye to his glory as the mark or the goal. It's very similar to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whatever you do then, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Even in our eating and our drinking. Even in the most mundane of daily life practices, we can glorify God. This puts an end to the idea that there's a secular and a sacred part of life. Right? All of life is to be lived to the glory of God. All of life is to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Paul's catch-all for activities. (laughs) Rather than giving us a long list of all the actions and activities of a healthy church, he helpfully gives us a principle to regulate all of our actions. Whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And if you can't do it or say it in the name of the Lord Jesus, then don't do it and don't say it. Healthy churches are those who are regulated by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in all that they do and in all that they say. Fourthly and finally, let us give thanks to God. The end of verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Now, you may have noticed that I didn't say much about Paul's command for us to be thankful back in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Command, be thankful. Nor did I say much in verse 16 about the fact that our singing is to be done with thankfulness in our hearts. 
And now here in verse 17, it says that whatever we do is to be done in the name of the Lord Jesus and it is to be done while giving thanks through Christ to God the Father. (laughs) Thanksgiving, it is clear, is to permeate all the actions and activities of the church. Three verses, three mentions of thanksgiving. Just as love was to be the overarching attitude and virtue of the church, so thanksgiving is the overarching activity of the church. A grateful people gather together to sing songs of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. Healthy Christians and healthy churches are grateful churches and Christians. It's hard to give thanks when we have a critical spirit. It's hard to give thanks when we're focused on what we don't have. It's hard to be grateful when we're constantly comparing our life to the lives of others and our problems to what seems to be the seemingly problem-free lives of others. It's hard to be grateful. It's hard to practice Thanksgiving when we think we really deserve a lot more or a lot better than what we have. You want to ruin a church or ruin your view of a church? Be critical of everything. Can you believe this place? Man, the coffee is... I've had a lot better. Be critical of everything if you want to ruin a church or ruin your view of a church. And be sure to share your criticisms widely. Be vocal. Say everything that comes to your mind. Consistently compare your church or your pastor or your elders with churches, pastors, and elders you think are doing it better, more faithfully, more effectively. Consistently think about how much better things would be if only the church would start a certain program or if only the church had a certain style of music or if only the church had a different emphasis than it does. Some people have made a a hobby out of having a critical spirit. And everything is viewed like a negative Yelp review. The soup wasn't hot enough. The service was terrible. The silverware had water spots on it. And to top it all off, there was entirely too much whipped cream on my brownie. Well, the antidote to a church-killing critical spirit is gratitude. Gratitude in all things. That's exactly what the parallel passage in Ephesians says. Ephesians 5.20. Always giving thanks for all things. Is there an out in there? Is there wiggle room in that? Always giving thanks for all things. 
This is one of the greatest indicators of a healthy church and of a healthy Christian. Thankfulness. Thankfulness for God's grace and mercy. Thankfulness for forgiveness and salvation and eternal life. Thankfulness for God's promises and his strong providence. Thankfulness for the body of Christ we've been called to and are a part of and are joined together with. A thankful church is a healthy church. And thankful Christians make for healthy churches. May the Lord make it so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we turn to you and give you thanks. We can take credit for nothing in our lives that is good. Only for the sin that we practice. And the unbelief that resides in our hearts. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for having a critical spirit. Critiquing this, that, and the other. When in fact we have been given so much. We are so blessed. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We lack nothing good from you. Forgive us for looking down our noses at your good gifts and at each other. Forgive us, Lord, and grow in us gratitude. Grow in us a desire for your word and to give expression to that word in song to one another, teaching and admonishing one another. Grow us in peace with one another. Letting love cover. Letting love rule. Letting your peace rule in our midst and be the arbiter, the deciding factor in all our differences and disagreements. May your peace rule among us, both now and until your return. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.